Welcome to Curva Mundial. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Curva Mundial. I am your host, Sal Bono, and my next guest is going to take us on what it is like following your favorite team in the World Cup and the Euros, and what both of those tournaments are actually like. Mike Janela is Portuguese and is a supporter of Os Navegadores and has traveled to support his team in Qatar and Russia recently, as well as some of the Euros. He's here to share his experiences about the fandom and what it's like. So welcome, Mike. Hey, appreciate it. Muito obrigado, as we would say in the in the homeland. <laughs> Love it. You know, thanks for coming on. Off the bat, I just want to say sorry to see how Portugal ended their World Cup campaign in the Middle East. But remember, at least your team qualified, and I continue <laughs> to hang my head in shame for the last two World Cups without Italy. It's, uh, it's you know, just remember that as I tell everyone how they bowed out. But being there for that team, for, you know, the, the team that you love, what is that experience like? And what was it like, you know, having a World Cup in the winter, you know, for just to go and travel there? So different. And yeah, my, my condolences to Italy. We thought we would be, so I went to Portugal for our qualifier, that playoff to make this World Cup. And we were expecting, oh, it's going to be us in Italy. And we were not that confident because you guys were in good form. But then, yeah, we all know what happened. I'm not going to drug up, you know, the, the past there. Oh, um, <laughs> we deserve no, so it. We deserve it. You know, you get what you play for, right? That's, That's exactly it. it. Um, it, it, this was a unique experience. So World Cup wise, you know, I've been to Brazil and I went to Russia both times, 14 and 18. And then the Euros, like you mentioned, I, I was there in 2012, Poland and Ukraine. And I was there at the rescheduled COVID one, which was kind of all across Europe uh, in 2021. And it didn't feel different on the ground because in you know, in Qatar, the winter there is like the summer anywhere else, right? I was walking around in short sleeves. You still have, you know, the sun's out, like you're still sweating on the on the subways trying to get to these places. So once you're there, it didn't feel different. But everything outside around it, the preparation mentally, I was so used to, okay, uh, summer's coming up, got to plan my summer trip around this tournament. Or on the converse side, coming back and not having to jump right into Christmas shopping or what's my new year's plans or, or things like that. Uh, my fiance, she's from Barcelona and we were spending Christmas there with her family this year. So to fly back, you know, from Doha and now two weeks later, I got to get ready on a flight to go back to Barcelona and like buy Christmas presents and, and do all this stuff, put up a Christmas tree, decorate the apartment all within, you know, these two weeks after just seeing a world cup, it, it definitely was a bit of, you know, something doesn't compute here in my brain that's kind of the, the computer wasn't really making sense of it so uh for a lot of reasons that i'm sure we'll get into as we keep talking um yeah this wasn't i'd say my favorite uh experience of the tournaments i've been to uh, in qatar and i'm sure you know that whole like spatial time uh displacement only added to the to the weirdness that i felt about about going there you know what's interesting to me is is that the Qatar Cup that just happened and the Cup in Russia as a neutral, and I've this is my first time experiencing two World Cups back to back, let alone I thought one was bad, but as a neutral, they were completely entertaining. They were so much fun to watch, both of those tournaments. And I never expected to say this, but so much had been made about the Qatar World Cup, and rightfully so, from allegations of the nation buying votes, which both sure. FIFA and the country have denied, to slave labor and inhumane working conditions, human rights abuses, and then to last-minute alcohol bans. The last World Cup was without a doubt the most controversial in every way. 
but it seemed to actually be better received than anyone expected. What was it like being there? And what was it like just walking around Doha during the day before those games kicked off at night? So take us through what that was like, because everything was also so compounded versus, you know, in most countries, especially Russia, it's so spread out that you have to fly from place to place, whereas here was seen to be you can rent a car and in a couple hours you're at the next location. Uh, yeah, not even. You can get it from the farthest stadium to the other in less than an hour on on oh. the metro. It was like that. It was that compact. Um, and whereas Russia, I remember because Portugal had its its last group game was I forget the name of the town now, but it was it was like an eight hour train ride that I took, you know, like an overnight sleeper train. That's how far it was. And still, well, you were just in like one small subsection of the country. Russia's a big place. Um, you know, <laughs> tangent aside. So this. This woke up. I mean, Russia was a little bit different. Obviously, Russia with anytime it's been you know under Putin, it's been its own thing. But Russia pre in 2018, pre invading Ukraine and everything, you could still say, all right, this is a historic country. I still because part of you know me going to these tournaments is not just the football, the soccer, but the experience of the culture and and where you are. And Russia is such a historic place with a great, like proud culture, just the history. I'm such a huge history, you know, buff. So to go experience that and be there was part of, of that element too. But with here going to Doha, that, that wasn't there. And because of all the stuff you mentioned, right. The human rights abuses, the migrant worker issues, um, you know, gay rights, women's rights, human's rights, um, not to mention the alcohol ban, right? Which like for an independent like, kind of drinker football fan is a huge deal in its own right, even though it's very low on the totem pole compared right. to other things. And I was super conflicted, uh, to be honest. You know, did I want to go to this tournament at all? And I, I wrestled with that for a long time because on the one hand, you know, I didn't want to support the potential corruption and, and the sort of sport washing of all this other stuff. Um, on the other this is a family tradition. Uh, I don't do these trips just to go watch top level sport. This is a family thing. I spent a week with my dad alone now for this trip. Mm -hmm. And we got to talk and have like meaningful conversations and bond about, you know, life and, and things that we don't always get to talk about. You know, I'm getting married uh, this year and to have a conversation with my dad about that kind of stuff. And, you know, maybe being a dad myself soon and stuff like that. Like that's, that's timeless to have, you know, sports does that, you know, fathers and sons, right. the old cliche is like, you can't talk about anything. Right. But put the game on and all those walls kind of melt down. And my dad's not that bad. We you know we get along great and he's very open and we always have a good relationship, but to be able to experience that with him um, is incredible. Uh, and, and to support the players and to support the team and these guys that have busted their asses, their whole career to go represent their country, you know, should you shortchange someone like that? When, you know, they didn't do anything wrong. Christian Pulisic didn't do anything wrong trying to make the World Cup. And it just happens to be played in a place that, you know, you don't want to go see. So that kind of stayed with me the whole time that I was there. Because as I'm walking the streets, you know, all I could think about was, you know, what went into this World Cup happening here? And trying to balance that with, all right, once I'm in the stadium and once the whistle blows, trying to compartmentalize that, but also not forget everything that went into it. And, you know, I think it was, you know, Raj Bennett, Men and Blazers, I'm sure you're familiar with him and your listeners probably are too. You know, I subscribed to their newsletter and he wrote a great little missive before I left, which really kind of captured what I was feeling that you had to, you had to look at it through two lenses. You had to appreciate and love and respect the, the game and the sport and the guys on the pitch while at the same time, recognizing and realizing everything that was going on 
behind the scenes and, and not ignoring that and not saying, all right, well, the tournament started, all that's in the past. Like, no, you had to live with that. And so, um, you know, I, I did some stuff, you know, trying to absolve my guilt. Like I, I donated to migrant worker charities, like everything I spent in Qatar, game tickets, lodging, like whatever I spent, I matched that to try and give to people that could use it and need it. Is that my just like white guilt and trying to like think of an easy solution? Maybe, but I was hoping to like at least do some positive out of this and, you know, giving to the culture, meeting with local people there, like interacting. So for me, being there on the ground, that was your original question, I guess. What was it like on the day to day? Um, there were a ton of, it was funny because there was really no, nothing Qatari about Qatar or about Doha. And I looked this up afterward on Wikipedia, um, you know, take that as a source for what you will. But only 12% of the country's population is Qatari. Right. Right. 12%. That's nothing. Everyone else is from like other Arab nations mm -hmm. that have gone there um, or other outside nations that have gone in for uh, property development or for the oil or for tourism or or just, you know, immigrant work. Almost everyone we met there, the volunteers, stewards, like FIFA pointed people, none of them were local. Met a lot of um, a lot of people from African countries were there, like crossing guards from Ghana, uh, mm -hmm. people scanning your tickets at the stadium from Ethiopia, a lot of Indians, a lot of people from Pakistan, uh, kind of everywhere, like Sri Lankans, a lot of Sri Lankans, Saudi Arabians. And so it was weird because when you go to Brazil for a World Cup, you feel like you're in Brazil. People are dancing samba in the streets. People are, the game is on TV literally everywhere. Barbershops, pharmacies, grocery stores, like all in the streets, all over the place. Um, Russia, you felt like you were in Russia. No one speaks English at the restaurants. Like, you know, they treat you kind of like, oh, you're from, you know, from outside of here, that kind of thing. This time, it just felt like you were like in a Las Vegas, but that it, like they didn't know they were Las Vegas, right? Everything kind of felt very shopping molly, very, you know, created for this, um, catering to tourists. Nothing really felt like, I, it just felt like a pop-up World Cup. And it's just, just decided we're doing it here. And maybe that's not fair to the people that actually, you know, live there and are hoping that this does spark a future sports revolution and that the stadiums they use can now be used sustainably for other purposes. Mm -hmm. Let's check back in 10 years, right? They said right. the same thing about the Olympics in Greece and the Olympics in Rio. And a lot of those places are, are empty and deserted now. So um, let's check back on that. I don't want to shortchange those ambitions, but in the moment being there, like walking around, they had all these, you know, activations and tourist setups. And it was all just like, it was all empty. It felt like everyone was there just for the matches and no one was really kind of exploring the cities like you would if you were in, in Rio or in Budapest or other places like that. What is interesting that you're saying is, um, from the outside looking in, I've never been to the Middle East. Um, fascinated by it. Love to go one day. But it does seem to, especially a lot of the the contingent of nations around Qatar, whether it's UAE mm -hmm. um, and so on and so forth, there, as you see, like, you know, Dubai is like a playground of the world at this point. Yeah. Right? And they they seem to model everything after the west it's like let's just make Las. it's like las vegas on steroids and cocaine simultaneously let's just build <laughs> yeah. you know let's build beaches we need beaches let's build them we'll make them and we'll make them and it's and it's these beautiful technological advancements which you have to like kind of marvel at but at the same time it almost seems as you everything you just said strips these young nations because they are relatively young nations young nations out from their own culture now also on the flip side is is that 
the World Cup should be around the world. So the Middle East at some point, yes, of course, was going to have to host the Cup at some point. It's only a matter of time before we also see one in Australia or New Zealand, you know, and back in Asia, back in Africa, I hope. Um, but that being said, like, as you said, like, you feel those, you know, and in those places that I just mentioned that where they have yet to go, you will feel those cultures there because it's so prominent. But yet, yeah. here wasn't that so much. And yet, for a place that's so small, that has attracted a lot of a lot of rich people from around the world to make it their playground, it is sort of trying to placate the people that are from our part of the world while almost forgetting their part of the world, if that yeah. makes any sense. No, it totally does. And I think... And this is the thing with a lot of areas of the world that people, you know, people paint Latinos as a monoculture or, right. you know, Africa is, and it's not. Right. Someone who's from Egypt is way different than someone from Kenya. Someone from Mexico is way different than someone from Chile. And so the Middle East, same thing. I think a lot of people think, oh, Middle East, it's very, it's all the same, right? But it's not. And I think to your point, 100%, like a World Cup deserves, deserved to be in that part of the world. But you look at, you know, Morocco, Saudi mm -hmm. Arabia, other Arab nations that have a much richer soccer footballing history that maybe it should have been there. Like the, the circumstances under which it ended up in. And I don't know if it's is Qatar, Qatar. Have I been saying it wrong the whole time? It's, I, it's open to debate. This is the thing that like that's another it's like open for debate, too. It's like I've heard both variations. of yeah. it. I've heard more variations of that of the country. Then I and as I have with the Moroccan goalkeeper who has my last name as his right. name, so I've heard right. Bruno, Bono, and Bono, which I'm going with the one that sounds closest to my surname. So that's you know that's, as as you should, as you should. But, so uh, um, yeah, no yeah, no so, disrespect intended to anyone uh, right. if either of us are mispronouncing uh, the country there. But you know the fact that all that all you know, all the rumors about the vote buying and. You know, they get France's vote and then all of a sudden there happens to be like a purchase from, you know, Qatari Royals of all this French like airplanes the next week. Like that stuff is what soured this whole experience, right? The fact that it was in the Middle East, I think is fantastic. I think it's amazing. And now you see with, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about Ronaldo at this point, at some point, you know, him going to Saudi Arabia, say what you will about that. But if that does inspire a generation of six-year-old Saudis or Qataris to now take this sport up and maybe in 20 years we see a golden generation of them in a World Cup. That's fantastic. We don't know that until, you know, hindsight is 2020. But, you know, to your point about the reason that it was there and the way that they built everything up from nothing to do this kind of Las Vegas thing. And yeah, and they, you know, when I was there, they they have they have a Venice. They created a shopping mall with interior canals where you can rent a gondola. They have a Greek amphitheater that they built to scale a replica from like an Athens, you know, Plato time uh, amphitheater to have concerts and shows there. And it's like, hey, you don't have to travel the rest of the world and see these things. You can just come here and see the replicas and kind of get the same feeling. Right. But whereas Las Vegas is kind of self-aware about the Statue of Liberty they have and the, and the Eiffel Tower they have, you know, in Doha, they felt like, no, this is like, this is. Where, why would you want to go to the real Venice? Ours is like newer. It's nicer. It's cleaner. Come here instead. Like they took it very like self-earnestly. And that was something that really struck me because 
Dubai there is similarly to like what you said, that's a place that if you look at pictures of Dubai in the 60s and 70s, there's nothing there. And now they've got the tallest buildings in the world, the biggest mall in the world. And 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 it's incredible. But yeah, the Middle East, there, it's, there's very different elements to it. You go to like Israel, right? And I've been to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and there's history there, there's character there. Whereas, you know, with Doha, they seem to be trying to play catch up to Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And they saw the World Cup as a way to sort of fast track that. And you could tell that it felt, you know, very shoe horned in as opposed to if you'd had a world cup in morocco or, or saudi arabia for example uh egypt it would have made i think a lot more sense historically for sure for sure and the thing too which you mentioned about ronaldo and and al nassar which where he's just signed to make the biggest contract in sports history yeah. uh interesting enough is, is that i've heard a lot of we i'm sure you have too the entire soccer and sports world has heard enough about this but i'm not defending the decision because I still feel like he could play at an elite level and his ego got the best of him. And I feel like he could just lower his wages and have played at a champions league level team elsewhere in Europe. My feelings aside, when you look at it as an ambassador program, as you had just mentioned, did people like when people, when Pele rest in peace, who has just passed weeks after this podcast is being recorded, you know, everybody talked about how, Pele was an ambassador for the sport that we love so much here in New York City in the city that we're both in that we love so much in the 1970s and then helped usher in Beckenbauer and of course Kenalia and uh, Johan Cruyff and so on and so forth to come here and play here. David Beckham, as we speak uh, in 2006 today actually is the anniversary of him signing or 2007 2008 2008 I will get the year right at some point uh, signing with the LA Galaxy and again yep. creating an ambassadorship program and at the time those numbers that both of those players had when they came to America were looked at as a bit strange because of how much money they were making but they open doors. When Ronaldo now goes and does it on the flip side it's oh, again there's like this hip, this hypocrisy of just well you're going to end your career there. It's like, well, we don't know that because we don't know what this could do. He's going to be there for so long that, as you just said, and I think you said it so beautifully, he could inspire the next great generation. When Alex Del Piero left Juventus to go play for Sydney FC in Australia, no one scoffed at that. They were applauding it. And, you know, when Tevez went to go, yes, he took a blockbuster deal in China. And the Chinese Super League, for all its faults, was trying to do what the middle east is doing now and like mm -hmm. creating superstar getting superstars creating interest to build up a team for future generations and if there's anybody that can do it it'll be one cristiano ronaldo that'll inspire so many middle easterners especially saudis to want to pick up the game and play you know, and and again, it's a, it's already like a, a soccer mad country. It's not like the, I, like he's trying to start something out of the blue. I, that's a that's a group of people that have had a, a solid team for years. They support it. They travel like mad. Um, and obviously, like a win that went over Argentina, that already kind of I'm sure kickstarted a, a, a movement there. Uh, I mean, if we're gonna go on this tangent quickly, I think it's to your point, but we would be looking at it a lot differently if not for all the, the Ronaldo-ness of it. And, <laughs> you know, I'm Portuguese. He's my countryman. You know, we're both, we're both citizens of the motherland and, and I've had my issues with, you know, him and, and all the stuff he does, but you know, all those other guys you mentioned, you know, Pelé didn't say, I still want to play at a champions league level. And that's the only team I'm going to go to next. And then just take the biggest check out there. Right. He didn't do that. Um, you know, um, 
Johan Cruyff did not go on Piers Morgan and just <laughs> napalm everything and everyone about you know, a, a club that made him who he was. So there's all that that goes into it as well. Plus, I think Saudi Arabia, because of all the stuff that they've already been in the news for, right? Uh, with um, wasn't it Khashoggi, the the yes. journalist yep. that they you know allegedly, allegedly uh, murdered? Um, the Live Golf, like spend mm-hmm. you know just throwing money around, you know Tottenham, their WWE deals, like all right. this other stuff that I think gives people a, a, a wrong taste in the mouth. Whereas you know Pele coming here. You know, America was the still back then. You can argue about it now, but it was back then, you know, land of opportunity, the American dream. This is the future of the sport. It already was the biggest, you know, TV market in the in the world. So, you know, it made sense then. Whereas not to say Saudi Arabia is not a big player on the world stage, but you know, the United States in the 70s was like one of two superpowers on earth, right? So it made mm-hmm. sense. Whereas, you know, this is is a bit more far flung, I think. But yeah, all that all that Ronaldo, you know, dressing that comes with anything he does, I think that's what separates, you know, his decision versus some of those other guys you mentioned. But we'll see in in 15, 20 years if it ends up being uh, you know, a, a net positive or just a, a footnote historically. That's an interesting point. That is a uh, uh, well played, man. Um, you may have actually seen him in December benched, I guess, or where we would say his what could potentially be the final time in a Portuguese kit. What do you make of that? And do you think he is done with the national team? I I don't think so, but it's going to take him being less like himself. Um, and <laughs> what, what I think about is, you know, my personal all-time favorite uh, Portuguese player is Luis Figo. You know, he was he was the Ronaldo at my age, right? When I was uh, a 10-year-old, he was the one winning Ballon d'Ors and all this stuff. When I was into high school, you know, he was the guy. And he was always, the way he comported himself, you know, Barcelona fans may beg to differ, but he always seemed to do things the, the right way and never really made it about him. And, you know, he was like, he, he went about the way he was like my grandpa, right. was always just like nice in interviews and respectful and never was like too flashy. And, and, you know, I had a cousin once that saw him in an airport in Lisbon and wow. they just like had coffee and Louise was like the nicest guy, just like talking and whatever. So like, I, that was always that kind of, you know, that's the ideal that I was hoping, you know, Ronaldo could strive for, but obviously he's gone a much more kind of blustery way. And that's how you get the most followers on Instagram of any human ever. Um, but I think about 2006 and how Figo took a huge backseat to, you know, an ascendant Ronaldo at the time and realizing he couldn't go a full 90 all the time and, and picking and choosing his spots. And I think if Ronaldo could swallow his pride to whatever extent he needs to, to be a 15 minute game, a guy to be someone off the bench. I think he could certainly do that at the next euros. Cause we also get a, you know, a shortened window because of the That's delay right. from yeah. the last one. But then, you know, to, to think about the next World Cup, I don't know. And, and the thing that's different about, you know, him versus Messi, you know, Ronaldo's game has always been much more predicated on that, that athleticism, right? Being mm-hmm. able to jump higher, being able to run faster, just being stronger. And when those skills fade, it's like a basketball player. If you can develop a jump shot or a three-pointer, you can la- make your career last a lot longer than if you're a Sean Kemp that just was always dunking all the time or like a Zion Williamson today, right? So can Ronaldo adjust his game. I don't know if he can, but I think he could still be effective in a much smaller role. Will he do that? That's the big question, right? I think we'll definitely see him at the Euros in some capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, Next World Cup, I doubt it. But at the same time, it's in the US. 
it's one last chance for him to maybe, you know, boost that brand before going into retirement or or whatever else he wants to do. You could sell a lot of CR7 underwear if you're in a World Cup, right, at MetLife Stadium in front of 80,000 people and the biggest TV audience watching. Um, we'll see. And then, like, I have no idea what he thinks about, you know, Roberto Martinez now taking over. Is that a good relationship? Can he convince Ronaldo to be different? Uh, who knows? It's, it's a lot to still be seen. So there is a lot to unpack there. You just led me perfectly into my next section here because, as we are discussing, um, by the time this podcast ends, Roberto Martinez has been announced as the new uh, manager of the Portuguese national team. Uh, I've got a lot of feelings about it, and I'm not <laughs> Portuguese, um, yeah. so I can only imagine how you feel about it. But I also this is a two part question: one, how do you feel about it? But two, there is so much amazing young talent on this Portuguese squad. Uh, as an AC Milan fan, Rafael Liao, of course. Uh, he's, he's he's that dude. Yeah, he's great. He, he's, you know, so like, so that being said, I'm not saying that this is the Portuguese golden generation, but we saw what Roberto Martinez did with the Belgian yeah. golden generation or didn't do with the Belgian golden generation. But there is a great young team here at its core with Portugal. How do you feel about those players? And how do you feel about the decision to hire him? So, I mean, my first thought was like, not, not excitement, right? It was just kind of tepid. Like you see this, you saw this a lot in the NFL for a while. They've gotten away from it, but it just seemed like the same five dudes were always getting hired, right? You'd go three and 13 with the lions, but then you show up on the Colts to just go like four and 12 and it just like, it's the same, whatever. And then you see someone like Sean McVay get hired. And you're like, oh, this is an actual young person getting a shot. And then you get Mike McDaniel, you get Mike, Matt LaFleur, like all these young thinkers, right? And you're like, oh yeah, I, I wish my team would take a chance on, on one of these younger guys. You know, for Portugal, Fernando Santos was for this roster, not the, the best coach, right? Very defensive minded, kind of this older Portuguese mentality, like, like a Mourinho kind of mentality where, yeah, it's like a, an embarrassment of riches on this team now in terms of, of moving forward. But the first thought when I saw that, you know, Roberto was the guy was Belgium and how they had a top three FIFA ranked team. And you take those with a, a salt shaker of salt, right? <laughs> but with Belgium, it was always kind of... Uh, recognizing their talent, a team that was always top three to five in the world for like the better part of 10 years has, you know, De Bruyne at the peak of his powers, mm -hmm. you know, had Vincent company at the peak of his powers at the back end, Lukaku up front, like you, you I don't, Hazard, you don't have, I don't have to tell you all the people, right. But to have these guys that are all like world-class at multiple areas of the field, not like you have a bunch of great strikers and nothing else or right. a great midfield and nothing else. They had talent up and down Cotois, right. And for him to not even make a final with that, with that, like that always, that's the first thing that I thought of. Mm -hmm. And Belgium always had it so easy. It seemed like they always qualified for every tournament with ease. They were the best in their group, whereas Portugal was always getting by the skin of our teeth to make it in via playoffs and whatever. And it's almost, yeah, my thought was, wow, he couldn't do anything more with that group. What's he going to do with, with this group? Um, but that being said, we've seen managers and coaches in a lot of different sports where, you know, the first fit wasn't right. And then they take what they learned from that and just need a fresh start, a new group of guys, and who knows? And maybe coming in to a Portugal team with Ronaldo on, you know, the 18th hole can free you up to try new things and experiment. And maybe being Spanish and being with a bunch of Portuguese guys, maybe that's a better cultural fit than being with a Belgium team that is you know, 
part Walloon and part Flanders and part like, you know, even Belgium itself is kind of a couple of different countries right. in one. So maybe that helps. Um, I, I have no idea. But my my first thought, I you know, I can't say I was pumped. I can't say I was excited. It was a little bit. It just felt like a like a like a recycled, you know, we're getting the secondhand toy uh, kind of thing. I hope he proves me wrong. I hope he just becomes a darling, and all the Everton and Belgium fans are like, "Where was this guy when he was with us?" That's my hope, and I hope he unlocks something with this this amazing group of of young talent that we have and attacking talent that we have. Um, and yeah, just wait and see. So I hope I, if you're listening, Roberto, I hope you prove me wrong. You know, I. You are much more optimistic than I was because when I saw the news, I I I, I, ha- I have to be. You I have, have no to be. Choice. No, you're right. Team, yeah. You're 100. You have to be. You have to be. Uh, again, neutral here, being you know so far removed from the situation. I I wanted to cry for the entire nation of Portugal. I'm like these people are too good <laughs> to deserve this uh, because you're right. It is a recycled thing, but also you have a league that yes unfortunately does not get the attention it deserves but at the same time there are great masterminds in that league you see porto going deep in champions league final i feel like sometimes the portuguese league is very similar to the italian federation and city where they're stuck in the stone age and they're afraid to try something new. They're afraid to try something young. I mean, look, Roberto Mancini is the youngest manager we've had in a long time. He ain't that young. <laughs> you know, so yeah. that's that's the scary part. Whereas, you know, you have a team or managers like at Porto, like at Sporting, Benfica, who are cultivating great young talent. Again, uh, using Porto as an example, going deep into the uh, Champions League at the yeah. very least. Why not make an offer? Like what, 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 I don't know. Like, we don't know the behind the scenes, obviously is contractual things, of course, come into play and, you know, maybe they can only just manage their club and not the country. But for me, I look at it going, I don't know, like it's worth the risk. It, we, again, you have great young talent that you have a five-year cycle. And in that cycle includes a Euro and a world cup. Why not just go for broke? And you, and you love that, that idea of, of, not ownership, but like kinship, right? Because for us now to get Roberto Martinez, for example, it feels like we're getting that hand-me-down toy. Yeah. Whereas if you get someone, I just watched because um, I've I've been on like a, a big uh, a big kick now of you know you know soccer football documentaries coming back from Qatar, and there's one from a few years ago on Netflix. You know, take the ball, pass the ball. It's yes, Barca, right? Yeah. And seeing how you know they came down to when they hired when they hired Pep when they hired Guardiola. And it was between bumping him up from the B team and taking a chance or going with Mourinho, who was already kind of a known quantity and, and, and kind of that old school manager. And the fact that, you know, that Barca roster and the people at that time, and my fiance is from there. She tells, she talks about him, you know, Guardiola, like he's uh, this just like, you know, Greek odyssey figure, right? It was just like poetic. He's, he's a saint. He's an angel in their eyes because they got to grow with him. Right. He was he was new, but he he gave, he didn't come from anywhere else. He was internal. He was with us from the beginning. Had his new ideas, you know, shaped the team in in his vision and his way. And then when you get to the top with someone from the very beginning that started there with you, there's just that extra kind of romance mm-hmm. to it, right? And uh, you're not going to get that here with with Roberto Martinez. And that's something that I think maybe I'm just being trying to be too too romantic about it. 
But I would have loved to see, yeah, like a young Portuguese manager that wants the job, not just be, he's not just available because he, you know, got sacked from his last place. Like this is an aspirational thing. He and the team can grow together. He's got some new, you know, trendy ideas that can take, you know, unlock something that this, this uh, federation hasn't had before. And unfortunately that's not, we're gonna have to wait and see if that happens sometime down the road. Cause it's not certainly in this cycle, but uh, yeah, like I say, I hope, I hope I'm proven wrong. Look, and I, I, hope I, so can, too. I can only be optimistic. It's my only choice. <laughs> for you, my friend, I hope, and for the good Portuguese people, I hope, I hope uh, my glass half empty uh, <laughs> outlook on this becomes a positive. But what I love here is that you don't actually have a club team, but as you told me, you've been paying attention to Barca in recent years because your fiance is from there. Congratulations on getting married this year. Thank you very much. It's it, it's a fun ride, man. Let me tell you, marriage is a don't listen to what everyone tells you. Marriage is a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, now you dispel the notion that someone from Portugal can't or couldn't cheer for Messi. Now, and I always hated the debate and dumb discussion between Messi and Ronaldo. Uh, but when Messi won that World Cup in Qatar, what was it like for you and especially your fiance? I know she wasn't with <laughs> you on this trip, but seeing him lift that trophy. And watching, you know, Barca, as I said, you know, going through all of this, what was that like? Well, she cried uh, when, when in the final because, uh, you know, to them. And that was part of Messi's struggles at the beginning of his career. All the Argentinian people say, oh, he's not Argentinian. He's 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 a Barca guy. He just happens to, you know, wear a thing. And until he started winning stuff, then the home people adopt him again. Um, but, you know, the people of Barcelona he's as much, you know, one of theirs in their mind as, as anybody else. So for him to win, I think not validated because the people of Barcelona don't need validation, but uh, they felt like, Oh, one, one of ours like went off and it's like when your kid goes to college and gets the degree, like, yeah, he, you know, he did it. Um, no. For, so for me, I, yeah, it's like Porto was always kind of like the team of my grandfathers, right? They loved it. But growing up when I did, there was no Portuguese games on TV here in the States, right? They're not on here now. You got you can get your subscriptions or whatever online. But, you know, it wasn't easy to kind of fall for them as the club team. Uh, you know, it's easier to just follow the leagues now. I can watch yeah. England on Saturday morning, whatever game is on, and I'll follow that. Or we can watch La La Liga now on ESPN, which is great. So, yeah, I never really got into like one particular club. Um, I was the cool kid of my friends playing FIFA on like PlayStation 2 back in 2001 before it like was cool. So like we knew how great Michael Owen was because he was like a 99 speed and I'd play him all the time. So like, I remember the first thing I ever ordered online when internet shopping was just getting started was a Michael Owen jersey that took like three months to get to New Jersey because it was coming from Liverpool. You couldn't buy it here in the States. So I, I would remember like, oh, I knew what Liverpool was or Man United or Real Madrid. Um, but I never like could watch the games and not really become a fan of them. But now, yeah, um, since I met my fiance and she's, you know, true blue, moved to the U.S. just four years ago. Wow. So former Barca season ticket holder when she was there, her best friends still are um, socios, I should say. Yeah. Um, so they go all the time and you know, her grandma lives three blocks away from the Camp No. So like it's it's in the blood, um, which is amazing. So I've been able to pick up like that as a de facto club team now because we watch together and it's just like, all right, let me, now that I can watch the games and get emotionally invested, that's what you do this for. Right. But you now the dirty little secret of me as a Portugal fan, and you can talk to my family, they know this and, and everything is that like over the years, I always preferred Messi over Ronaldo just as like a general player, mm -hmm. human 
like brand, right? The Ronaldo, all the stepovers and the preening and all that, that I didn't like that. It just, it turned me off. Whereas Messi, whether it's true or he's just like a really good actor, always seemed a bit more humble, a bit more uh, cognizant of, of the, the larger, the largeness of the sport that he plays and the history of where he's been. Whereas Ronaldo never seemed to know or care about anything besides what was happening in the six foot three area of Ronaldo. Right. Um, over time, he, he won me over obviously Cristiano and it's kind of like, I don't know if you're a wrestling guy, but I'm a big pro wrestling fan. And yeah. like John Cena was someone that <laughs> wrestling fan, like he came up, he was the next big thing. He had all the tools, right? Just like Ronaldo did, but then he turned fans off for a long time. But then over time of just putting in all the work and showing up and just being there for so long, you kind of win people back over again. And that was Ronaldo, especially by 2016, you know, he helps win our first major trophy. That solves right. a lot of issues for people and reputation. Um, but no, like Messi for me was always someone that I, I think I respected a little bit more. And my fiance just walked in from a meeting and she heard me say that and she's pumping her fists in the air. <laughs> so <laughs> putting a smile on her face, but um, yeah, so I always thought that that's dumb and it's, this isn't, life or death, right? You can right. root for one person, respect another. Uh, you know, I, I get it. If you're, you know, club and nation as well are two different things. Mm -hmm. If you're a Madrid person, yeah, you weren't going to root for Messi, right. but you know, Portugal, Argentina, they weren't playing ever like head to head in, in these world cups or anything like that. So I think it's very different even as a Mets fan, right? I grew up. Yeah. I hated Derek Jeter and Bernie Williams and those guys, but I respected them. Right. Right. Like Mo Rivera would come in a game and I'm like, damn, I wish, I wish we had him because he's so good. And it's like, it's a, it's a hate born out of respect. And that's kind of what it's always been like uh, for me with those guys. That's Mike. I'm so happy you're on here uh, <laughs> because we got a pro wrestling basketball analogy in a soccer question. It's just, it's, I it's, cover all the, the bases best evening man. I've had, you know, <laughs> but you brought up your other passion, the New York Mets, which yes, this is not a, a baseball podcast, obviously, but there is some news happening that we need to talk about because soccer is a sport you're passionate about. You love the Mets baseball team, but they're currently building a soccer stadium next to city field in Queens. Yeah. How excited are you about it and what will that do? And is it anything for the Mets? Obviously, there's a baseball team involved, which is NYCFC's uh, parent company, the New York Yankees, uh, co-owned by Manchester City and the Citigroup, uh, yeah. who are putting in the money for the real estate. So what is that like for you, one, having your baseball evil empire so close by, but also seeing a baseball stadium come next to this gorgeous cathedral of baseball. Cause if you have not come to New York city and have not seen city field, I will say this yeah. as a, Yankee, don't waste your, don't waste your time at Yankee stadium. Go to I'm city gonna say, yeah. <laughs> like, look, I, look, I'm a Queens guy. So it's, it's you city field. Is, it's, it's just stunning, man. It's stunning. So and I tell you what, the, the, the in-game host, the guy they have on the big screen there, that he's the real ticket. That's the reason you go to a game is to watch that guy. Whoever, I did want to bring is. it up, but you know, we're gonna, you know, let's bring it up. Yes. So if the name sounds familiar and you've been to City Field in recent uh recent seasons, Mike's Mike's the guy. Yeah. So what is so what's that like for you? And like, is this gonna do anything for the team? Is this gonna do anything for the area? Like, talk to me about that. I think it's been huge for the area. And, you know, Steve Cohen, ever since he took over, has been very adamant, and I think rightly so, of trying to develop that area around the park. Because uh, the one good thing Yankee Stadium has going for it, it's it's in a neighborhood. There's bars nearby. There's, like, other stuff to do. 
you know, City Field, unless the U.S. Open is happening, right. you go to a Mets game and that, that's kind of it. And you know what Steve said uh, recently at the time we were recording this, he's like, we're within walking distance to the marina and to there's there's all this, you know, empty space that's not being used for stuff. We should be able to make this a destination. You know, Flushing is a train ride or, or two away or a stop away on the subway and the great you know, cultural stuff you have there, the restaurants and the shops, and then the rest of Queens, forget about it. I mean, it's the most right. diverse place maybe in the world. It is. And it is. Not yeah. even a maybe. It, it, like, yeah, flat out. That's like full stop. It truly is. It's the most diverse borough right. in the world. So to bring the world's game to the most diverse you know place in the world makes sense, right? It's a no-brainer. And especially the number of, of Latin communities that are there in Queens, right? Uh, Venezuelans, Ecuadorians that are mad for this sport to now put this in their backyard. I think it's going to be fantastic. And if it adds, and if it's like the next stepping stone, the second sort of crown jewel of a redevelopment of that area that makes it a destination for people, I think that's only good for the people of the area, um, the city at large, Sure, the Mets and NYCFC and, and all the tenants uh, of whoever's going to be there. You know, I go to different places. I go to Philly and all their teams play like in that same complex, right? You have mm -hmm. Wells Fargo Center. You've got the Link. You've got um, Citizens Bank. And there's all these, you know, what, I don't know what it's called now, Xfinity Live or, or whatever it was, Comcast Live. I don't know. These name rights <laughs> change all the time. But you can go before a game, after a game, and there's just like there's, you know, 10 bars and there's like activations and stuff you can do or other places that you can go and have make it a day right and, and have and have make this a destination and i think that's only going to make things better for mets fans too after a big win you want to still hang out right and party and celebrate and if there's no other places to do that then that's tough or you can have that dream that dream day of going to an nycfc game at one and then going to the mets night game at seven and having just like the day of your life like that's that's amazing so that's I what i'm hoping for to be yeah, honest exactly wedged in between all this as you said there's the marina but corona park is a hidden it's huge gem. it's, it's amazing it's corona park is, is a phenomenal place and again it connects the stadium to you know this this gorgeous area but it's that's the day that i'm hoping for is that i can go to an nycfc game at one o'clock in the afternoon on a saturday maybe have like a picnic lunch, go hang out afterwards or whatever, early dinner or the Queens night market, even better. Go get some go. international cuisine and then walk my ass on over to city field and go catch a ball game. Like that's like typical that should, that I hope becomes my typical like summer day down the line. And it's um, good for the sport too. Cause you watch the NYCFC game where you go to one and in Yankee stadium, like, a pitch doesn't doesn't belong there, right? It just doesn't make sense. You you get a soccer specific stadium. Look at what the Red Bulls have in Harrison, yeah, and it's just it's it's such a better experience. So I think to give them something soccer specific and to do give it to a community that's going to be just like thirsting for it, I think it's going to be a win win for for everyone. Now time for a coffee break. Curva Mundial is sponsored by Mod Cup Coffee in Jersey City. But you can get it anywhere in the world from ModCup.com. ModCup. Drink modern coffee. Use code MUNDIAL for 10% off your first order. Mike, this has been an absolute blast. We're in the final stretch of the podcast. I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions that I ask every single guest. So if you can – now this is going to apply to the Portuguese national team. If you can bring back one retired player to the team, alive or dead – who would it be and why? 
Uh, so we've already talked about maybe my personal preference being Luis Figu, but since we're so set, I think on, you know, wingers and, and midfield creators and his ilk, uh, I have to go way back to maybe the best to ever do it for us, even more than Ronaldo, Eusebio, because he, you know, that, all right, good, good. Because the one thing that this, you know, this, this nation has lacked going back to his days is a finisher, right? Like a mm-hmm. classic number nine. And don't give me Pauletta or Nuno Gomes. Like, I love those guys, but those are not, that. those aren't like Brazilian Ronaldo or Thierry Henry level finishers, right? So if you had all the setup guys we have now, and then, you know, Eusebio up there up front to, to, to finish things off, I think he'd be, he'd be the last piece of, of the Megatron for, for this outfit. I mean, at that point, he makes Roberto Martinez look great. So, right. Yeah, he makes any he make anybody look great. <laughs> uh, if the Portuguese national team could nationally, usually this pertains to a club, but we can do this. We can uh, for a national team. If they could nationalize any active player today, we're going to pretend everybody's Portuguese and they can bring them on per FIFA rules. Who would it be and why? Zimbabwe is the only choice, I think. I mean, that dude, to do what he's done already and he's only 23, like, it's insane. And you just watch him and, you know, so, you know, we lost to Morocco uh, now, this tournament, obviously, and then watching France just kind of decimate them. And my cousins and I were talking and the my one cousin was like, you know, this is just a different level. Like, yeah, we would have loved to, you know, get our shot at France in the semis, but Mbappe is just carving these dudes up like cheese. <laughs> and like Pepe is not going to slow him down, you know, right? So he's just a dude that, you know, we've seen this before. We never know with young guys and where their careers go trajectory-wise. For every Messi or Ronaldo that, that does this for 20 years, you have a Michael Owen that, you know, just flames out because of injury or whatever. So uh, you never know where he's going to go next. But for this dude kind of at the at the top of his game now, just having – all the infinity stones, uh, he'd be, he'd be the one. Love it. And finally, what has been your favorite moment as a fan? It's for a lot of reasons. It's going to be the 2012, uh, Euro. Okay. We were playing, uh, the Dutch. It was us in the Netherlands last game of the group stage and it was winter advances and, and that was it. And it was my first, you know, international tournament that I went to and it was a trip with my dad and my two brothers and it was the last game we had there and the stakes were so high and you know ronaldo was at the peak of his everything at that point and we we won and ronaldo had the brace i believe uh i'm going to i'm going to double check this now yeah he scored we we go down one nothing and then he scores the equalizer like 15 minutes later then he scores the winner with like 15 minutes to go and just like, I remember this vision in my mind, just seeing him like rampage down the wing. And this is 2012. He's probably the fastest athlete on earth in that moment, right? Chasing right. after a through ball. And I never thought I'd see like athleticism. People talk about, I saw Bo Jackson in person, or I saw Mike Tyson, right? But to see someone at his like physical peak, then put the squad on his back, win us that game. We go through, I'd never experienced a, a knockout game like that right it was my first international tournament after watching this club 
you know, I, you know, waking up at 5 a.m. to watch them in Japan and Korea in 2002, <laughs> watching, you know, them get eliminated by France in Euros 2000 and my parents like scramble box, uh, you know, maybe illegally <laughs> watching that on New Jersey cable, um, like all this and to finally like see it in person and to have the elation of us going through. And I remember just like celebrate to have it with my, my dad and my brothers, obviously the most important, you know, men in my life. And to cap that trip was just, it, it incredible and um that or and it's gonna be ronaldo again uh in russia 2018 against spain when he had that hat trick and he put yeah. that free kick in in the 88th or 89th and i i remember i was just there i was thinking like just put it in and it's the only free kick he scored in the world cup he's, he's famous for his for his free kicks the only one he's ever put in but i was on that side behind the corner flag I, I i saw that ball coming toward me and the portuguese old man next to me that i had met that night kissing me on the cheek. We're hugging. Like that's the euphoria that you, that you followed this game for in this sport. So it's going to be one, one of those two uh, for sure. They stick out with me even, even all these years later. Oh, I can't think of a better way to end this. That's perfect. That is absolutely perfect. Well then let's leave it there. (laughs) We're going to leave it right there. Thank you so much, my friend. Uh, Thank you for coming on and doing this. Really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Always fun to talk, uh, to talk the beautiful game with somebody and uh, yeah, man, it was fun chat. Follow us on Twitter at Curva Mundial Pod and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.